All right, if you'd like to go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, Today's December 1st, so that means we're officially into the Advent season where we anticipate and look forward to the birth of Christ. And this morning I was thinking, uh, if you and your family are looking for a way to spend uh, from now until Christmas and to regularly and intentionally inject the truth of the gospel and the truth of, you know, the deep and rich meaning of Jesus' birth and the celebration of Christmas, uh, I would encourage you, there are a number of really wonderful Advent devotionals out there that would work for any stage of life that you might be in. If you have young children, there are great options for those with young kids. If you've got older children um, or you're single adult or empty nest or whatever the case might be, um, there are some great options out there that you could do in the evenings and just make part of kind of the regular routine between now and Christmas. We encourage you to do that. If you're interested in what some options would be, reach out to us. We'd love to, um, I'd love to be able to point you in the direction of something that would would be good and uh, hopefully uh, just provide regular opportunity uh, for you and your family to engage in some good conversation as we approach Christmas. Um, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 11, work our way down to verse 12 in chapter 6. So if you have a Bible on your phone or with you and you want to open up to there, that's where we're going to be. I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. God, thanks for this morning, the chance to come and to worship. Uh, God, to be together as a church family. God, I pray that uh, our, our time together always would be marked by a sense of gratitude, that that's not something that we would just kind of squeeze into life here uh, in November or the end of November every year, but instead that as followers of Jesus, we would live lives that are marked by a gratefulness and a thankfulness supremely for the gift of Christ and his work on our behalf. Um, God, I pray we would be people who are marked by gratitude for all of the gifts that you've given to our lives that Uh, We certainly did not do anything to deserve, Lord, but by your grace you've placed in our lives. Um, God, would your spirit make us humble, grateful people who are vocal about their gratitude, both to you and also to others. God, I pray you'd speak through your word this morning. Uh, Would you bring clarity, uh, comfort, and encouragement out of this passage, I pray. Um, Lord, would would your word and your spirit speak to us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, This morning's passage in Hebrews is a challenging one. And so what I want to do right from the start here is kind of uh, lay out some uh, precursors, if you will, about what is it that I'm trying to do and maybe on the other side of that, what am I not trying to do? Uh, So four things here. Number one, different people hold different views on this passage of Scripture, and that is okay. Um, this passage in Hebrews, specifically verses 4 through 8 in Hebrews chapter 6, deal with what is known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. There are people who have different viewpoints on that particular doctrine. This is one of those things that we hold with an open hand. And so um, certainly over the next 30 minutes or 35, 40 minutes, we're not going to solve 2,000 years worth of puzzling over this passage of Scripture. And so... 
Um, you might have someone who presents this differently. You might think differently than how I'm going to present this. You may have a pastor that you really like to listen to or a, a teacher of God's word who comes at this from a different angle that you appreciate more. That's a-okay. You just go onto the internet later today. You listen to them and you don't need to tell me. Sound good? Uh, number two, my goal um, is not to like lay out a defense this morning for a certain position. If I were writing a commentary or some sort of scholarly article or something, that would maybe be my aim, but I'm not doing that. That's not my purpose every Sunday when I come up here. I'm the pastor of a local church congregation, and my aim every week is to encourage and shepherd uh, to guide and feed and protect this congregation through the preaching of God's word. And so for that reason, I'm going to approach this passage differently than if I was doing something scholarly. If my intent were to write a commentary on this passage or to put together an article that defended my view on the perseverance of the saints, I would approach that one specific way. That's not my goal this morning. My goal is to be pastoral for our congregation. And so um, I'm going to go in that route. If you came this morning, you've been tracking along with Hebrews with us over the last few months, and you've been saying to yourself, I'm really excited to get to Hebrews chapter 6 so I can hear how Tim defends his view on these verses. You're going to be sorely disappointed this morning because that's not my goal. Number three, context is key in this today, which is why I've chosen to group this passage together in the way that I have, and I'll explain that as we go along. If you took Hebrews 6, specifically verses 4 through 8, and you kind of lifted them up out of their context and tried to handle them on their own, you could create for people a wealth of insecurity, a wealth of confusion and doubt, and that's not what we're trying to do. So we're going to leave this situated in its context in Hebrews and take a look at it through that lens, and I'll explain that a little bit more as we go. And then last, it's simply not possible to do this passage of Scripture well in like tweetable, quotable sound bites. And so that's not how this is going to happen. Um, there will be slides, and there'll be some information up there on those slides. I hope those can be part of what the Holy Spirit does here to bring clarity to what it is that we're looking at this morning. But there's no way to do this in short sound bites. So if you're a note taker, um, I would encourage you to try to get down more than just what's on the screens, because if you come back in two weeks and you look at your notes from the screens, you're going to say, I don't know what that means. Um, so either get down some more of the context or just listen this morning and you can go back and take notes via the podcast later. Those are my four precursors. Um, in this passage, the author of Hebrews actually gives us explicitly the reason why it is that he wrote this passage, these few paragraphs. And so we would do well to keep that in mind right from the start. So I'm going to go there first. It's the last two verses of our passage this morning, Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12. They say this, Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Each of you to demonstrate diligence for the full assurance of your hope. There's the reason for this three or four paragraph stretch. Confidence, assurance, certainty, hope. Not, and hear me clearly on this, doubt or confusion 
or anxiety. You can be certain as a follower of Jesus that when you approach Scripture, God's aim and His revelation of Himself is never to create within you a sense of confusion or a sense of anxiety or a sense of doubt about whether or not you're held firmly in His hand as one of His children. Scripture absolutely calls us to be sober-minded and to give honest reflection to our own hearts and to our own sin. Scripture absolutely puts forward that we have sin and that we need a Savior for that sin. And Scripture puts forward in sparkling clarity and shining beauty Jesus Christ as the only sufficient Savior for that sin. We walk confidently in Him in this life, and we wait expectantly for the glorious goal of our faith, which is eternity with Him. And so when you approach Scripture... Yes, there will be times where what what we see in Scripture, the Holy Spirit pricks something inside of us and causes us to do some honest dealing with the brokenness inside of us. But that's very different than thinking that God, in authoring Scripture, did so in such a way that we would just be entirely confused about who He is and what He wants from us. This passage of Scripture is no different. It's intended to give us clarity. So with all of that, let me read... Hebrews 5, verse 11, down through Hebrews 6, verse 12. We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain, since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness, because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have are for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. We're going to start with the context here. And I want to do this in kind of two pieces. I want us to get the big context of the letter of Hebrews, and then I want us to get kind of the local context of where it is that we are in Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6. Often what we do when we come to Scripture is that we first ask the question, how does this apply to me? That's not the right starting point. When we approach Scripture, we should ask ourselves, what does this say? How does it fit within the whole? And then, how do I apply it correctly? When we come to Scripture the other way and we say, what does this have to say for me? We end up doing things like taking Philippians 4.13 and writing it on our eye black before a football game because we believe somehow that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is mostly about reading defenses and throwing complete passes. That's simply not the case. What does any passage of Scripture say? 
how does it fit within the whole letter and within the whole context of the Bible and God's revelation to us? And then, how do we apply it? So we have to start with the context. And the context of this is first century Jewish Christians. That's who the... Uh, that's who the author intended this letter for, a small church of Jewish heritage, Christian believers, likely in Rome, who are facing stiff persecution. And from the beginning of Hebrews to the end of Hebrews, the author has one goal, to display that the New Testament fulfillment in Jesus is better than Old Testament shadows in Judaism. There's apparently a need for the church to be encouraged not to return to the Jewish faith and the practice of their family or their upbringing. There's a need for them to see how it is that Jesus is the true and the better fulfillment of all the things that the Old Testament held out for them. And so in order to do that, what he does is he puts forth these kind of Old Testament shadows. And then he holds up exactly how Jesus is better than that thing. He's done that through Moses. We've seen that already. Through the promised land, through Joshua, through high priests. He's going to do that coming up with, in regard to the old covenant versus the new covenant and the sacrificial system versus Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The goal is always the same. How is it that Jesus is better than that thing? And then inside those comparisons are these intermittent warnings. In chapter 2, there was a warning to pay attention to Jesus. Lock your heart on him. Don't drift past the harbor of his grace and love and mercy. In chapter 3, there's a warning to consider Jesus rather than considering anything else. Lock your mind onto him. Don't revert back to thinking about anything lesser because he's better and he's worthy. Kind of bridging the gap between the end of chapter 4 or 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, there was a warning to watch out for unbelief regarding the word of Jesus. Lock your ears to his words. Believe what you hear from him and know that it's for your eternal good. And then last week we got down to the, uh, the bottom of sort of the first section of chapter 5, which ended in verse 10. And that whole section was about how Jesus is our great high priest. He's better than the Jewish high priest. He ended that section in verse 10 by referring to Jesus as being a priest, not of the Levitical order, but of the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is greater than the Levitical high priest. That conversation is going to pick up again in chapter 7. In fact, if you look at Hebrews 6.20, he basically says the same thing in 6.20 that he said in 5.10, that Jesus is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But he stops here starting in Hebrews 5 verse 11 to offer another warning. There's a problem he wants to confront, a warning he wants to give, and an encouragement based on that warning. So that's how we're going to approach this. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, down to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3, lays out for us the problem. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain. Why? Because you have become too lazy to understand. That is the problem. Laziness. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. He's got a lot to say about Melchizedek and how Jesus is better than the high priest. But he needs to pause because his readers aren't going to understand and they're not going to understand because they're immature. 
They should be able to teach others, but instead they need to be retaught the basics. What are the basics? Look down at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Let us leave the elementary teachings about Jesus and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith in God, of teaching about ritual washings, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Those are the basics. That you need to repent from works as the means to your salvation. That you need to understand faith as the means by which you are saved. God's grace received through faith in Jesus Christ. That they've got to keep going back to talk about clarity regarding certain Jewish rituals, ritual washings, laying on of hands. What do we do with those now that we're Christians? He wants them to have a firm grasp, not just on the possibility of the resurrection, but the certainty that in Christ that resurrection happened. They need a sober-minded view of the eternal realities at stake. And Lord willing, the author says in verse 3 of chapter 6, we'll get past this if God permits. They're like infants who still need milk rather than mature adults who can handle solid food. And the reason is that they're immature because of their laziness. That's the root of their immaturity. Verse 11 of chapter 5. We have a great deal to say about this. It's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. You're immature and it's because you're lazy. The word for lazy there is nothroi in Greek. The reason I've grouped this passage together the way that I have is because down in chapter 6, at the end of uh, the paragraph there in verse 12, that word lazy appears again. The author links together. There's a problem. I'm going to give you a warning about the problem. I want to give you an encouragement. And the problem is that you're lazy. And my encouragement, not a surprise, is don't be lazy. And so that's why I've linked this section together the way that I have, rather than just lifting the middle section out. Their laziness is the reason they aren't moving forward in their faith. Their laziness is the reason that they're still too immature to eat solid food and have to drink milk, he says. And that laziness, that immaturity, has a solution. In verse 14, solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Training is the solution. The word for training there is gymnazo, where we get the word gymnasium. Train, discipline, exercise. Maturity is for those who have trained their faith muscle to understand the things of Christianity and to walk them out in the world. Those who are mature are those who are training their faith through the regular use of that faith muscle. When I was in college, I ran track at the University of Missouri, and we would have this fall sort of preseason time where um, we weren't competing. We were waiting for indoor, but we would have practice five days a week and whatnot. But it was all just sort of general fitness. And then we'd arrive at Thanksgiving break, and that Friday they would send us home with like four workouts that we were supposed to do while we were gone. When you were freshmen, you didn't know this, but when you came back on Monday, what was waiting for you was a time trial. Why? Who was lazy and who trained? Who sat at home and atrophied? Who continued making progress? Who's a boatload of gravy right now? And who continued to work out? And the, the intent was to actually teach you a larger lesson because Christmas break was coming and they were going to send us home for three weeks and then we had to start competing in meets. 
And so when they gave us the workouts to send us home for three weeks, they wanted us to understand that it will be obvious if you don't engage in these. And so every freshman went home, did none of the four workouts over Thanksgiving, came back and got a nice firm talking to about the importance of training. Keeping things in context here. Likely what has happened is that in the midst of their persecution, these Jewish Christians have shrunk back and hid. They've become sort of reclusive in their faith, trying to just not create waves, to not be seen, which means that their faith muscle, so to speak, has atrophied. Their laziness is producing immaturity. Training could undo that for them. In fact, their immaturity might be a sign of something more grave, something more troublesome. So there's a warning that starts in verse 4. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. There's the warning. The warning is against what's called apostasy. Apostasy means to abandon or to renunciate or to repudiate, to reject a belief. The author says that your apostasy has a beginning point, and it's contempt. It's impossible to renew you if you fall away. This is because, so what's the reason for falling away? To their own, own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. Verses 4 through 6 show us that these Jewish, Jewish Christians have heard the Word of God, tasted God's good Word. They've had their eyes opened to the person of Jesus. They've, they have been enlightened. They've tasted the sweetness of the eternal gift of heaven. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. That's what the CSB says. You might have a translation that says participated in the Holy Spirit or participated in the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the better translation there. They've shared in the goodness of the church, the powers of the coming age. They've had a foretaste of the coming kingdom thanks to the church. And what have they done in response to those? They've knowingly turned their back. Some of the individuals have knowingly turned their back or are at risk of knowingly turning their back on Jesus. This is not a matter of sinning and thus no longer being saved. Oftentimes as a pastor, we'll engage with people who feel like because of a certain sin struggle or something, it must mean that they're not saved. That's not what this is talking about. We could have a conversation about the fruit of a believer's life and the inevitability of fruit and sanctification as a response to the working of grace in a believer's heart, but that's not what's being addressed here. What this is about is apostasy, rejection of Christ. John Calvin says it this way, It must be noticed that there is a twofold falling away, one particular and the other general. He who has sinned in anything has fallen away. Therefore, all sins are so many particular fallings. But the author speaks here not of theft or perjury or murder or drunkenness or adultery, but he refers to a total defection or falling away from the gospel, when a sinner offends not God in some one thing, but entirely renounces his grace. The person being warned here is not the one uh, who has sinned once, or not the one who wrestles with the reality of their sin, who hates their sin. The person being warned here is the one who's thinking about a total rejection of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. 
What's being described, in my estimation, is the best description that Scripture gives us of what it would look like to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. In Luke 12, verse 10, Jesus says that this is the one sin for which there is no forgiveness. Here in Hebrews, we're told the person who has seen and tasted and experienced the things of verses 4, 5, and 6, and then held Jesus up to contempt, cannot be renewed to repentance. Contempt, scorn, disdain, disregard, disrespect, neglect. That's what's in view here. And that apostasy would have an end point. That's the illustration that plays out in verses 7 and 8. It's an illustration about a field. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing. The field in verse 7 receives the rain and produces fruit, vegetation. That's a metaphor used throughout the New Testament to describe those who are truly saved. They'll receive a blessing. The blessing of eternity in the presence of God. Verse 8, in contrast, but if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and at the end it will be burned. The field in verse 8 receives the rain, does not produce any vegetation, which is used throughout the New Testament to describe someone who's not saved, and the end result for that field is a curse, a gathering and a burning, condemnation. That's the end point of apostasy. Starts with contempt for Christ, or scorning, a disdaining, a rejecting of Christ, a neglecting of Christ, and it ends in condemnation. What verse 8 describes as gathering and burning. What would the apostasy be here? That's the question we have to ask. If we're going to understand what this means and how it fits, we've got to ask what is the apostasy that's being talked about? It would be sliding back into Judaism that their laziness would cause them to revert back to what's comfortable, which is their Jewish religious history. And what would Judaism entail? The idea that you could have God and all of his promises and all of his blessings and have nothing to do with Jesus. That's what the persecution is. Look, we're totally fine if you want to be Jewish. That's great. You can continue to worship the same God. You don't got to worship the gods of Rome. We don't care. Just lay down the Jesus thing. Go back to being Jewish. And so the apostasy would be to say, you know what? I think in the face of this persecution, I can renunciate, repudiate, reject Christ and still have all the things of God. Hold him up to being re-crucified. Right? Isn't that what the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day thought? If we could just kill this guy, just get rid of him, we could thwart God's plan of redemption. They're re-crucifying Jesus all over again. There are people in this little persecuted church who from the goodness of the word of God had had their eyes open to the person of Jesus, tasted the sweetness of the eternal gift of heaven, participated in the work of the Holy Spirit, shared in the goodness of the church as a foretaste of the coming kingdom, and yet are considering a rejection of Jesus Christ as the means by which one is brought to God. In their contempt, it's as though they're crucifying Jesus again thinking that by doing so, they can somehow have God and not have Jesus. So what the main question of Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, is the person being described here a truly saved Christian who has lost their salvation? 
In answering that question, I want to put forth two things for us to consider. Number one, Judas Iscariot. Judas heard and saw the word of God, right? In the flesh, Jesus Christ. He had his eyes open to the person of Jesus. He tasted the sweetness of the eternal gift of heaven. He participated in the work of the Holy Spirit. He shared in the goodness of the church, the disciples, the apostles, a foretaste of the coming kingdom. And yet, he made the ultimate rejection of Christ, turning him over to the Jewish leaders of the day for a bag of coins to be crucified. You tell me, was Judas ever a saved Christian? Was he ever truly regenerate? I think the answer is no. I think he was near to and surrounded by the things of Jesus without ever having actually placed his faith in Christ as Savior. And I would go so far as to say that his act of rejection in selling Jesus for that bag of money is evidence of the fact that he never participated in Christ in a salvific sense. Illustration number two. The parable of the soils from Matthew chapter 13. There are four soils in that parable, all of which represent different states of the heart. Some of the soil is a hard path, and when seed is scattered on the path, nothing happens. Some of the soil is rocky and shallow, and when seed is scattered on that soil, a plant springs up quickly, but it's eventually scorched by the heat. Some of that soil is crowded with thorns and thistles, and when seed is sown into that soil, it shoots up, but it's eventually choked out by the thorns and the thistles, the cares of the world, Jesus says in his interpretation of it. And then some of the soil is good. When seed is cast onto it, plant springs up and it produces fruit. The gist is that seed is scattered everywhere. And it's not the fruit that saves, but the fruit gives evidence to the soil that was present. And so, how many of the soils are illustrative of saving faith? Truly saving faith. Just one. Just one. How many of the soils give the appearance for some time of having been saved, but were never actually good soil? Two of them. The rocky, shallow one, and the one with thorns and thistles. Incidentally, if you were to look through at Matthew chapter 13, the parable that comes right after the parable of the soils is called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. There's good seed sown into a field, and an enemy comes along and sows weeds among that good seed. And it all grows up together, but at the end, it's separated. And the only one who knows how to separate it is the master. And what's the end result? There's a collection of the good fruit, and there is a burning of the weeds. That sounds a lot like Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Yes? So is the person described here a true Christian who has lost their salvation? I would say no. And I would say that with a humble confidence that's convicted in my stance, but certainly not willing to die on that hill. I've been trying to be consistent with this throughout this series. When we talked about the drifter in chapter 2, I said that individual's not saved. They've never actually anchored themselves into the harbor of God's love. When we got to Hebrews chapter 3 and we... Saw Hebrews 3.14, I said that your faith tomorrow is evidence of your faith today. You'll know that you are a participant in Christ if you hold firm until the end. To me, this passage is right in line with those two. It's also an explanation of what John means in 1 John 2.19 when he talks about antichrists, those who are opposed to Jesus. 
He says, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. If you lifted Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, up out of its context and just worked with it by itself, it could produce a lot of fear in someone. Unfortunately, that's happened through this text all throughout history. I don't want to do that this morning. So we've seen the problem is immaturity, laziness. We've seen that the warning is against apostasy that starts with a contempt for Christ and ends in condemnation. And then there's this encouragement that starts in verses 9 through 12. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we're confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your works and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. There's the encouragement. The author looks at this Jewish Christian congregation and he says, I see. I see your love for the saints. I see your serving of them. I see the fruit out in your field. Does that sound like the field in chapter 8 that's going to be condemned and burned? Absolutely not. He's saying, I'm confident of something better for you, something that pertains to salvation. Most importantly, God sees their fruit, and he will not be unjust. God sees their love, their service. God sees the evidence of grace at work in these believers' lives. And the author says, I want you to be certain of that to the very end. I want you to cling to that. I want you to hold on to that all the way to the end because your faith tomorrow is the evidence of your faith today. That certainty has an initiation point. Verse 12. So that you won't become lazy, Nathroi, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith. That's the beginning of your Christian certainty. Faith. Your confidence, your assurance, and your salvation begins at your moment of faith where you receive the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. Notice I didn't say that your salvation or your justification has a starting point of faith. Grace is what saves you. The justifying work of grace in your life does not need to be completed by something that you do throughout your life. You receive that grace by faith and your sin is washed clean. But the author wants this church to have certainty. And he knows that certainty will not only be good for their souls, but will also help them hold fast in the middle of their persecution. And so in verse 12, he reminds them, your certainty began with your faith. That's been his message throughout the book of Hebrews. We preach that relentlessly here. You're not saved by anything that you do. You're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But there's something else tucked inside here. There's there's another way that you can have certainty here. It begins, it's initiated with your faith, and you remember that confession. But it also continues in your perseverance. How do you continue to hang on to that certainty? You persevere. You're diligent, he says in verse 11. You exercise that muscle. What does he want to guard his readers against? Laziness. 
If you're that field that's producing fruit, if you persevere, which literally means to long suffer, and you persevere in your acts of faithful obedience and love and service and the evidence of grace at work in your life, you won't ever have to worry about whether or not you are saved. Be diligent. Persevere. Don't be lazy. Train yourself. If you don't, you may slip back into Judaism. That's what's being said here. And display that you were never saved by grace at all. There is a means by which you can be certain of your salvation. It starts with your, your faith and it continues in your perseverance. Don't go back to Judaism. There it is in its context. What in the world does that mean for us today? How do we apply this to ourselves? Our threat is not that we would slip back into Judaism, at least not that I know of for anyone in this room. Now, it certainly could be the case for somebody. The bigger threat for us in 2019 would be that we would drift along as a cultural Christian. Cultural Christianity is not saving Christianity. The warning for us is that laziness would display that we were never actually saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, but instead we thought we were doing some Christian things and therefore we must have been saved. I went to church. I threw some money into the offering plate. I think I held on to the right political views, whatever those are, right? I believe in God. I do my best to be a good person. I was around the family of Christ, heard the word of God, got little tastes of the sweetness of eternity, saw the Holy Spirit working in my midst, shared in the goodness of the kingdom, thanks to, the com- or thanks to my presence in the church. Those are all wonderful things. But notice that there's nothing in them about Jesus. Instead, there's a contempt for him, a scorn, a disregard, a neglect a thought that one could have God and all of his promises without the need for the whole Jesus thing. That's the warning for us. I did this when I talked about the drifter in chapter two, and I'll do it again right now. I believe very firmly that in each of our services over the course of this morning, there are individuals walking into this room who fall squarely into this boat. They've grown up around the church we make this so easy, especially in middle America. And we just muddy the waters on what it is to be saved and what it is to not be saved. That, oh, well, you belong to a church. You must be saved. No, there's a difference between belonging to a church and belonging to Jesus. There's a gulf of a difference there. An eternal gap. I'm a good person. I look mostly like the Christians around me. I've never placed my faith in Jesus Christ, though. They went out from us, but they were never part of us. Tasted the goodness of God's Word. Heard it preached on Sundays. Saw the Holy Spirit working in other people's lives. Saw it celebrated in baptisms. Tasted the gift of heaven as the church body around me worshipped Jesus Christ. And it felt like this must be what it's like to stand in the presence of God. And you get those brief moments, right? We've all experienced those. Gotten those tastes of what kingdom reality must be like thanks to Jesus. And yet, never placed faith in Jesus Christ. Never received God's grace. 
There's the warning of Hebrews chapter 6. That you would just drift along like that. One of the most sobering warnings in all of Scripture comes right out of the lips of Jesus. He says that there will be those who in their moment of judgment stand before the throne of God and God looks at them and says, away from me. I never knew you. And what will their rebuttal be? But I did all these great things. What about fill in the blank and fill in the blank? My church attendance was fantastic. Away from me. I never knew you. Why did they not ever know? Jesus. Grace received by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That person didn't arrive in heaven and lose their salvation. Notice, the warning is not, away from me, I used to know you, and somewhere along the line, now I don't. The warning is, never. I never knew you. That's the warning here. There are people in this room today, I can say with 100% certainty, that that is where you fall. I, don't, I couldn't walk around the room and, and point to people and say, this person's definitely saved and this person's definitely not. But I know that in a suburban American church, when you get this many people together, you've got this mixture of folks who are just culturally Christian, went to church as kids, grew up around Christianity, church on every corner, comfortable talking about God, but have never actually staked their faith on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone as the means by which they're saved. Grace is not at work in your life. Get that right today. I cannot plead with you strongly enough. I received a phone call not long ago, a member of our congregation who had a friend who was in their last days of life. And the person in our congregation was curious if I would be willing to give their friend a call because they had a lot of anxiety about what awaited them after death. I said, sure, I would be more than willing to have a phone call with your friend. So I gave them a call, and we spent a little bit of time on the phone. And as we went back and forth, um, I could tell that they were just in a lot of internal turmoil. And so I finally just, I said, let me just ask the question that matters. That question is, have you been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the immediate response was, I went to church my whole life. Not the question. Not the question. In fact, that answer to the question about salvation is textbook Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Oh, you've been surrounded by the things of Jesus your whole life, but you've held it up to scorn and contempt never been interested, never received it for yourself. Contrast that with a woman who recently passed away in our congregation, an elderly saint who had walked with Jesus for a long time in her life. And our pastoral staff went down and were sitting in their living room one day and were just listening to her talk about the confidence that she has for what awaits her at death. She knows for certain. She's clinging to that hope until the end. She's got absolute confidence. Why? Because she knows she received grace by faith and she persevered in that grace her entire life. In American suburban Christianity, we make the gap between saved and unsaved so muddy 
But there is a stark line in the sand on that when you stand before God in judgment. And it is you either received grace by faith or you did not. And there's no middle ground. You either held Jesus Christ up to scorn or you treasured him in your heart. Those are the only two options. It's not that you treasured him at one point and then you decided for scorn. I don't believe that that's an option based not just on this passage, but on the book of Hebrews as a whole and the rest of the testimony of God's word. Another place in 1 John says, perfect love casts out fear. If that perfect love, that grace has entered into your heart, there would be no point at which you would fear that you could lose that. No point. So I want us to do a little diagnostic here as we close. If you're someone who has uh, said that you would pass out communion, if you would come and grab this and start to distribute this. Here's how we do communion here. Um, Anyone who has placed their faith in Christ is uh, invited to take this, to grab the elements, hold them in your hand, take part in communion with us. Anyone who has not, just let the tray pass by. Here's what we're doing when we take communion. We're holding in our hands grace right before our eyes. Poured out blood of Jesus Christ, broken body of Jesus Christ. And what we're doing is that we're confessing that that act is what we treasure in life. That our faith rests entirely upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And the grace of that act is the thing that's going to save us. And we're treasuring it. Now, there's an opposite side to that. You may say to yourself, I've gone to church my entire life, taking communion a lot. I hold these elements. They don't mean a ton to me. This is just a thing we do. That might be illustrating something about the reality of your heart. Scorn and rejection, contempt, or treasuring and adoration. When we take communion, we're coming before the Lord in adoration. For those who are saved, this is a treasured act. It's the opposite of contempt for Jesus. It's ultimate adoration of Jesus. To behold his body and his blood, to give thanks for them is the only means by which we are saved. Offers us an opportunity to repent. Offers us an opportunity to be refreshed once again in our appreciation for Jesus and who he is. Reminds us that there's mercy to forgive and grace to strengthen. And ultimately, Hebrews chapter 5 reminds us that there is a high priest in the presence of the throne of God who intercedes on our behalf and makes it so that we can go with boldness to the throne of grace. That's what we're doing in communion. You either treasure that or there's contempt and scorn. I would ask you to take a look at what's in your hands and be honest with yourself. Where do you fall? The warning of Hebrews 6 is that you could look at those two things despite all your experience in church and say, I think I can have God without Jesus. Thank you very much. Saving faith would be to look at those two elements and say, I cling to these by the only means by which I will be saved. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace. Thank you that because his body was broken and his blood was poured out, we can stand before you in right relationship, 
covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, hidden inside his righteousness, a participant in all of the holiness and righteousness that he is in and of himself. God, I pray that as we take communion, that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ would treasure that. God, would we adore Jesus in this moment? God, for those who haven't ever received Christ, God, I pray that you would show them the reality of their need for a Savior, that you would show them the sufficiency of Christ as their only Savior, and that by your grace, you would draw them to yourself that they might be saved. God, that is the most important question we ask ourselves in all of life. It's the eternally significant question that hangs before all of humanity, God. And in communion, we have the chance to remind ourselves of our adoration for Christ or we have the chance to pour out contempt for Christ. God, we adore you in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if you would take that wafer, that is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. you would take that juice. That is the blood of Christ. Take and drink in remembrance of Him. If you've not ever received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, I cannot encourage you enough. Before you leave today, there are people seated in this room all around you who would love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means to be ushered into salvation. We don't do like the come, come on forward, let's do the altar call sort of thing. We don't do that very often here because we believe that there's a room full of people here who could talk to you about saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so if that is you and you need that, just turn to someone and ask. Don't wait till we're done singing. You can do that right now. They would love to talk with you and to pray with you about that. Let's stand and let's spend time adoring Christ in song together.